following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This morning we are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. This is a loosely lectionary-based series, so if you are looking for a way to use the scriptures, read them devotionally in your own lives, I would encourage you to find the lectionary online. You just search for Google, it'll be the first result, and um, uh, you, you'll, get it, you'll get to see several different scripture passages each week, along with the text in Philippians that we'll be focusing on on a given week. I think, though, we're one week ahead of the lectionary right now. I could be wrong. When I looked for it this morning, I think I had to go back a week. So just keep an eye on the website if you'd like to do that stuff. Anyway, uh, I want to tell you uh, and introduce to you Chris Sullivan, who will be preaching to us and uh, along us, alongside us this morning. Chris is one of the members of Artisan's College of Preachers, which is an uh, a new thing we're trying this ministry year to have uh, lay people engage in the act of proclaiming God's word, the scriptures, to us. And uh, so you heard several weeks ago Wade Reed preach a great sermon. He was the first one to go. And Colleen Schneider will be going in the third week of this series. And today it's Chris. And uh, in every case, every person who's involved in this collegial preaching effort is, uh, I believe, very gifted, uh, very bright, and has, will have awesome stuff to share with us. And so I can't wait to hear what Chris has to share this morning and what Colleen has to share uh, in a couple of weeks. And I can't remember the date, but Marielle Jensen-Battaglia will be the next one to go in... Uh, the College of Preachers. So this is a new thing, and I know that you will be very warm and receptive to our friend Chris. And uh, Chris, thank you for doing this. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. It's a would pleasure. Like, Me too. Would you like to have a little <laughs> music stand or something? Yeah, that would be nice. All right. Poor effect. Good morning, everybody. So my wife would be the first one to tell you that when I'm nervous, I tend to talk really fast. And when I'm excited, I tend to talk really fast. And I am both nervous and excited this morning. So I just might talk a little fast. So I've given her instructions that this is the slow down sign. But if you think I'm talking too fast and you'd like me to slow down, Feel free to, like, raise your hand or something and, I don't know, help them Jesus or whatever. And I'll take that as a cue to slow down. So this year's theme is shaped by the words. Um, And so throughout this year, we are being intentionally focused on listening to the biblical story, uh, the broader picture, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Uh, And one of the ways that we've done that recently is over the last five weeks, Scott um, surveyed the basic story of the Old Testament um, in a very funny, very punny flannel graph series. Um, so we looked at, you know, from the, the story from creation of a good world to the devastation of sin to God's constant efforts to bring about redemption through a chosen people. We ended last week by looking at the prophets, and the announcements of God's promises. But as you know, the story continues. 
the Gospels, so we come to the Gospels. In the New Testament, there's four of them, if you haven't known that before. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in it we read of the birth, life, mission, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is described as God's ultimate victory in redeeming humanity and eventually all of creation. After the Gospels, we come to the book of Acts and encounter the early church preaching this new gospel message. And not only that, but figuring out how to live life in Christ's, or, well, you know, how to live life in light of the way Christ's kingdom has changed things, which would have been an extraordinary challenge. Come up with a new way of living. I think that'd be hard. One of the chief characters in the book of Acts is Paul, who is a Roman Jew who encounters Jesus, experiences a major worldview shift, and becomes what's referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles. He travels all over Macedonia and Greece, racking up frequent flyer miles, uh, building pockets of churches in all the cities that he visits, or most of the cities he visits. He writes numerous letters to these churches, such as his letters to Rome, or his letter to Rome, the letters to Corinth, the letter to Galatia, Ephesus, and also to Philippi, which is the book we'll be looking at for the next three weeks. Philippians, I'll give a little introduction here to Philippians. Philippians is a theologically dense but also highly practical letter. Uh, The basic reason for the letter is for Paul to thank the church at Philippi for sending him resources while he is in prison. Now today if you're in prison, um, if you're an inmate in prison, you're, not, you're fed, you're clothed, uh, you have access to resources such as, you know, gyms and libraries. There's the cue to slow down. Okay. Um, yeah, so you, you just have access to a lot of things. You might even be able to get a free college education. Mind you, it's still not someplace I'd, I'd want to be. But in the first century, however, you weren't provided with anything in prison. If there was no one to bring you food clothing, or other life necessities, you simply went without. You didn't eat if no one brought you food, and you were naked unless someone brought you clothes. So you can understand why Paul took the time to write a thank you letter. Paul begins the body of his letter in verse 12 by letting the church at Philippi know how he is doing and how his imprisonment has not hindered his missional work and how it has actually advanced the gospel. He very honestly and openly talks about the two possible outcomes of his current situation, which you could probably pick up on yourself. Um, So he'll either be put to death by the Roman Empire he was probably in Rome at the, at the time he's in prison writing the letter to Philippians, or he'll be set free. In fact, Paul describes a situation like being stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, Paul says he desires to depart and be with Christ, but on the other hand, to remain alive is more necessary for the church. And what I think is kind of a humorous turn, he says, yeah, you know, it's It'd be nice to, you know, die, I guess. You know, work would be done. But it's more important for you that I live, so 
I don't think I'm going to die. You know, I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> so at this point, we turn to the next main section of his letter and the verses that I really want to focus on for today. Uh, that is chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, which are, uh, is on page 953 in the Red Bibles, if you have trouble finding the text. So we're not going to read it just yet. Bear with me for just a second. So Paul shifts focus from himself and his situation in prison to the Philippian church. And before we get to the text, we need to pause a little bit and, and situate the text in its historical and cultural context because I think when we do that and then when we read the text, it'll make a little bit more sense um, or add extra layers of nuance to the text. So Philippi. Philippi was a city on Italian soil. Uh, it had been taken over and named by Philip the Great. Ten guesses as to where he got the inspiration for the name. Uh, Philippi had the unusual distinction of being a Roman colony. And to ensure Roman allegiance, Philip the Great populated the city with uh, retired Roman military soldiers. Pretty smart move on his part, I think. Uh, so, so I just want to emphasize that point and say it again. It was full of Roman veterans. Paul's audience were in most part, Roman soldiers. So Philippi was, in all respects, sort of like a mini-Rome. In fact, that's kind of how they describe themselves. It's like a little mini-Rome. So there was a strong, or you can imagine that there would be a strong air of Roman pride in Philippi. And I imagine that Roman pride at Philippi might have been something like patriotism and Cumberland, North Carolina, which is home to the highest number of U.S. veterans in the United States for some reason. The majority of them like to go to Cumberland, North Carolina. So you can bet that there's like a strong sense of national pride in that community there. And, you know, I think the same would be true for Philippi, a strong sense of Roman pride. Uh, But this air of Roman patriotism would have also carried with it strong religious implications. Specifically, Caesar was regarded as the supreme divinity in the Greco-Roman world, maintaining his vast empire not simply by force, though there was, of course, plenty of that, but by the development of a flourishing religion that was trumping most others. Caesar, by being the servant of the state, had provided justice and peace to what was, at that time, the whole world. He was therefore hailed as Lord and trusted as Savior. So this is the world in which Paul announced that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was Savior and Lord, a statement common common throughout all of uh, Paul's writings. So if you've ever wondered why Jesus is referred to as Lord and Savior, all over the place in the New Testament. Now you know. It's because, um, because in that day, Caesar was like, commonly referred to as Caesar and Lord. And so Paul, by repeatedly saying that, and announcing that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was Savior and Lord, was saying that it's not Caesar, but Jesus 
Does that make sense, everyone? Everyone with me here? Okay. Right, so it's, it's language that has to deal with dual citizenship, right? So it's citizenship or a believer's true citizenship in contrast to the Roman citizenship, which I've, I've been learning as I've been studying for this um, series that, it, it, that, that that language is extremely charged in a lot of Paul's writings and specifically in Philippians. And so throughout Philippians, Paul speaks directly to the extraordinary challenge before the church at Philippi. They not only had to figure out a new way of life in light of Christ and his kingdom, which, if you think about it, by itself would have been a pretty difficult task. Imagine figuring out a new way to live. Like, I don't know, something pretty gigantic happens and you have to figure out a new way to live. That, I don't know, that would be pretty difficult, I think. So, but not only that, but imagine having to do that within an immensely powerful religious superstructure that had little to no tolerance for allegiance to anything other than Caesar. So to make this point clear, imagine with me that you're a Roman and you are wholeheartedly devoted to your empire. You go to a public sporting event, And instead of reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, you passionately praise Caesar as Lord and Savior of the whole world. Okay, here we go. During the holidays, you go to Caesar's temple and offer prayers to the gods on behalf of Caesar. And yes, Caesar had his own temple. You're walking through the city, you see a friend, and you exchange the common greeting. Caesar is Lord. As a retired Roman military vet, you would instinctively, without hesitation, do anything for your country. One day, someone in your workers' guild refuses to hail Caesar as Lord and Savior, and yes, involvement in a workers' guild, which was really what provided stability for employment and financial stability, uh, involved hailing Caesar as Lord and Savior. But instead, this person has the audacity to, instead of hailing Caesar, to say that a Jewish man named Jesus is Lord. And to make matters worse, this Jesus was executed by crucifixion, the most shameful form of punishment at that time. That person is not, would not only be considered a traitor or, well, Right, so the person would not, be, would not only be considered a traitor to Rome, but he'd probably be in part ins, you know, viewed as insane because he's praising a crucified Jew, which would sound pretty insane. I mean, at best, it would seem like insanity. And at worst, to praise Jesus as Lord would have been an act of treason because you're implying that Caesar is not. And so consequences would have followed. So let's turn now, with all that in mind, to chapter 1, beginning with verse 27, which marks the end of Paul's focus on his imprisonment and the beginning of his focus on the church at Philippi, right? So he's addressing the church now. So he says, okay, so he says, verse 27, whatever happens... 
which in the Greek is like, above all else, no matter what, only this one thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'll move this a bit closer, actually. So, what does Paul mean when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? And I'm going to play a little bit with the Greek here, um, so you'll have to bear with me. I mean, some of you will probably think it's interesting, and others might say, oh no, Greek. Uh, so if we look at the Greek verb for conduct, politeus, we get a clue. The root of this term is related to polis, right? Pale, polis, which is the Greek term for city. It's also the, word, the root of the word where we get words like politics and metropolitan, stuff like that. And that, so the term has to relate with public or civil affairs, right? So it's a very like politically charged word, which makes sense for Paul to use in speaking to the Roman colony of Philippi. So N.T. Wright, a scholar on Paul, um, and picking up on that, translates one, chapter 1, verse 27 like this. Let your public behavior be worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. And that's really what Paul is talking about, how the church conducts themselves publicly. They're to conduct themselves publicly in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So preachers are always looking for three points of application, right? So I thought it was actually convenient that Paul gives three points of application for how to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he defines how to live worthy of the gospel. If you look to verse... See, I was foolish and didn't bring up a Bible, but I'm pretty sure it's just the next verse, verse 28. Or maybe it's a continuation. I don't know. You can see. So Paul defines how to live worthy of the gospel by asking that the Philippians stand firm in one spirit. Whether this is the spirit of unity, could be, or the Holy Spirit, also could be. Both are pretty common themes in Paul's writing, writings. Um, they're to remain rooted to their convictions no matter what challenges or dangers they face, which were more than likely considerable. Remember, Philippi was essentially Caesar's kingdom. It was a Roman colony. Next, Paul asks the church to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Again, picking up on Philippi as a Roman colony populated with military vets, the verb, once more with the Greek here, uh, strive together, is in the Greek a military term for fighting side by side, shoulder to shoulder, um, that kind of like rootedness and stability, striving together with uh, oneness of purpose. Um, So they're to exhibit the kind of singularity of purpose that advances the gospel. 
Lastly, Paul encourages the church to not be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And I promise this will be the last time with the Greek. The verb for frightened, paturaminoi, here occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Pretty interesting. However, in classical literature, it's used only to describe how a herd of horses are thrown into a wild and out-of-control panic when threatened. Um, Horses may have a flight-not-fight instinct, but Paul's saying that's not the case for the church. Um, They're to not be frightened, not to be, you know, maybe a better word would be spooked. They're not to be spooked into chaos when the tough gets going. Now, some might expect Paul to tell them to live in opposition to, pu- to the public or civil affairs of Rome, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't say, reject Rome, nor does he say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Instead, wholehearted allegiance to Christ involves a more nuanced approach to life, specifically life in one's broader cultural context. See, the church has never been intended to be like a chameleon, simply blending into its cultural, whatever cultural background it finds itself apart. Nor is the church supposed to be like a rhinoceros, simply charging at every cultural thing that they see. Rather, the church takes a nuanced interpretation of scripture and a nuanced interpretation of culture and navigates life in a way that reflects the reality of the kingdom of God. And so that, you know, as an aside, that's kind of, that's really something that we should be embodying. That's, you know, that's a, an approach to life and to faith that, that we should um, take together, you know, understanding scripture in a particularly nuanced way and understanding culture and then bridging the two horizons together are important. So I think that this nuanced approach can only take place when we as the church stand firm to our convictions, when we strive together with a singularity of purpose and remain rooted in those convictions when difficulty arises. Yet unlike the church at Philippi, we in Rochester are in all actuality and honestly not going to see that much persecution, right, for uh, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're probably not going to lose your job because of it. You're probably not going to be put in prison. And you're probably not going to be tortured for being a follower of Jesus. There might be some people who think you're weird, but it might be because you actually are. Um, (laughs) Nevertheless, the consistency between our convictions about God's kingdom and our manner of life will be evaluated by those who are curious, those who are critical, and everyone in between. And the way we behave or respond to situations or events will either advance or blunt the gospel message. So if you think about it, you are at all times a public ambassador of God's kingdom, called to proclaim in both word and deed the good news of life, wholeness, and redemption that Christ brings.
And I think if we're all honest, we would say that this is probably not actually always a priority for us. For the church at Philippi, they were forced, I mean really forced, to take a definitive stand on their allegiance to Christ. They were either going to be faithful or they weren't going to be faithful. Um, There wasn't that gray area in between. In the 21st century, or in 21st century America, however, we're not persecuted or viewed as insane for our faith, so it's really easy to become complacent. Essentially, there's a, a pretty significant amount of gray area. So, are there areas of your life where you may have become complacent as a Christian? As one who advances the gospel, is that even a priority? So, standing firm, I think, involves being actively engaged. Paul also encourages us to be united with a singularity of purpose. And I don't think I can really emphasize enough just how central this is to Paul's writing. It's in all of his letters, and it's all over the place. Unity, unity, unity. Strive together, strive together. Um, One of my college professors would often say that there's no such thing as what he called a Buford Christian. Um, Buford, Wyoming is the smallest town in America with a population of one. So, you know, he would say, like, how do you, how can you be a town with a population of one? That just doesn't make sense. How can you be a Christian a Buford Christian with, as a, you know, one who's not part of a community. Community is essential to Christian life. And Paul would have certainly gr- agreed and taken it one step further by, adding, by <clears throat> adding that central to the life of a Christian community is unity. Unity does not mean uh, that everyone in the church should think the same way on all points of doctrine. Instead, For Paul, it means that the church holds a singular passion for the advancement of the gospel. And artisan as a whole does pretty well, I think, in building unity within the church. We tend to be pretty focused on cultivating um, personal relationships uh, in small groups and um, at church with people we know and then with people that we don't know, which is great. Um, In addition, we have some good social justice programs available here at Artisan. But I wonder just how passionate we are about actually sharing the gospel and inviting people to be part of God's redemptive kingdom. I wonder if we have to some degree become comfortable with doing like good kingdom-centered things and have in some ways failed to engage in the uncomfortable act of openly sharing our faith. If we are passionate about the advancement of the gospel, how well do we embody that passion? I think it's a relevant question for each of us as individuals and as a church as a whole. Throughout Philippians and most of his letters, the gospel is, for Paul, the center of everything. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 16, Paul describes his work as defending and confirming the gospel. His stated purpose for writing the letter is to thank the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel in chapter 1, verse 5. His first and overarching imperative throughout the letter is to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ in our text here in 127. 
which, as an aside, is the entire text from 27, or the verses from 27 to 30, are in the Greek one whole sentence. You end up with really long run-on sentences in Greek. And it has, as the main verb, only one main verb, which is that verb conduct. So that's really what Paul is, is driving home, and it's really the thrust, the core of his message throughout the book or the letter. And the highest commendation Paul gives his co-workers in chapter 4 is that they served with him in the work of the gospel. So now I'm really challenged by how the gospel for Paul is the core, the center of all of life, relationships, um, and how you live publicly um, and engage culture, how you live privately and personally. So how passionately are we as a community, how passionate are you as individuals about advancing the gospel? So I can't end without briefly touching on what Paul does not mean when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Um, Because I think this will be important. So here's what Paul does not mean. Living worthily does not mean living sinlessly. We tend to use worthiness today to mean that someone has earned whatever accolade is attributed to them, right? So we might say that a coworker is worthy of a promotion or that someone is worthy of their title or office. And many of us are parents, and we just might one day find ourselves saying that so-and-so is not worthy to date our son or daughter. But this use of the term suggests that it's a person's actions that are what make them worthy. But this is not what Paul is, is implying here or anywhere else in his letters. Uh, for Paul, God's salvation is always a free, unearned gift. Living worthily does not mean living sinlessly. So remember Peter? He denied Jesus three times. Then he left and was not even with Jesus when he died on the cross. Nevertheless, af- nevertheless after being raised from the dead three days later, Jesus went to Peter and asked him three times if he loves him and three times commanded him to feed a sheep. Living worthily involves forward-looking. Remember Paul? Paul persecuted the church before Christ essentially turned his world upside down. The person who is here encouraging the Philippians to live worthily of the gospel has in the past Christian blood on his hands. Guilt can be a significant hindrance to living worthily, I think. But part of living worthily is having a forward-looking gaze. We all have probably done things we regret that we wish we could undo, that we might be ashamed of. But Christ is always, always ready to forgive. He sought out Peter and revealed himself to Paul. And essentially, the past is in the past. Later in Philippians 3.13, Paul will say, This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's not your own worthiness that brings salvation. 
There's only one who is worthy for that. And shifting to communion, he invites you to his table. As you come, I'd ask you to reflect on two things. First, remember that you're invited to come to the table. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been inviting people to participate in the symbolism of what he has done for humanity, tearing the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever. This is the table of the Lord, the creator of all, the slain and yet living lamb of God who is presently seated on his throne. So come not because you're worthy of it, but because the one who is worthy invites you. Second, when you're done taking communion, remember that the invitation is not merely to come to the table, but it's also to go from it. Right, so yeah, so the invitation is not to come to the table, but it's also to go from it, to serve the king and his kingdom with wholehearted allegiance. So when you go from the table, go with confidence to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in your communities, uh, in your relationships, in your workplaces, in your relationship with the Lord. So here at Artisan, we practice intinction, which you just tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever is appropriate uh, for you. So let us come and go and worship the Lord together. Thank you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.